Hello, this is Daniel Barron. Today on Winemaker's Journey, we have a two-hour dual podcast with Inside Winemaking's Jim Duane. Jim is the winemaker at CV Vineyards, where ironically I worked as a consultant in the 1980s and early 1990s. He is also a winemaker for Naked Wines and a partner in Territorium Wines. His popular podcast is a great resource for understanding the technical background of winemaking based on interviews with professional winemakers, researchers, and technicians. As you will hear, he is not only a good interview, but a great interviewer. Let's get started with Season 3, Episode 2 of The Winemaker's Journey. Welcome back to season three of the winemaker's journey and inside winemaking. This is what season for you, Jim? Oh, I'm, I'm in season one. I think I'll always be in season one. Season one, one perpetually. Perpetually. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is Daniel Barron and I'm here with winemaker Jim Duane of the of inside winemaking. I'm so used to saying the winemaker's journey. I start throwing in a the and we're going to do something unique. We're going to have a dual podcast. We're going to interview each other and uh, see how it goes. I, uh, I'll do my best not to, to talk over you, but I got lots of questions. So okay. We're going to go. All right. Good. So I'm going to start with a question for you and, and um, be, tell, tell the listeners, what's the idea of Inside Winemaking and when did you start doing it? What was your goal when you first set out? In 2014, in August of 2014, right before harvest, is when I uh, published my first episode. And what I wanted to do was to to build sort of my network of of talking to winemakers and, and such in a technical way. Um, I found from listening to podcasts, not necessarily about wine, but just podcasts in general, that it was just my preferred medium of, of learning. Um I'm not a big reader. I have some troubles with reading, but listening to things was just, it's, it really clicks with my brain. And also I listen to podcasts when I'm in the cellar or sometimes out in the vineyard. Um, and so it's a, a, it's a way to multitask essentially. So I took a job, I went from Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, where I was an assistant winemaker, 2011, took the winemaking job at CV Vineyard, where it's just me in the winery. I get a couple interns during harvest, but otherwise for nine months of the year, I'm alone. Um, and it's really quiet, and I needed a, a chance to get out and talk to winemakers, grape growers, and other other people. I had come from Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, which was just this nexus of of brain power because it was part of right. the Antonori Group and Saint Michelle Wine Estates, and so there were winemakers and grape growers coming in from from all over the you know West Coast U.S. and obviously the the properties in in Italy that are under the, the Antonori banner. Uh, and it was also part of the DNA of, of Stag's Leap from the very beginning. Warren, who had been so generously mentored by by Bob Mondavi, and he really kept that up. I think that, that winery was really, um, was probably unusual in that sense, that there was a lot of interchange and, and there were certainly a lot of different people. John Williams came through and there were a lot of different, influences on the winemaking side so i could see how that would would have been kind of a cultural shock 
Yeah, huge shock. That's a, that's a great way to put it. And I, I longed for that. I love the work at CV. Actually, I have sort of an introverted nature, and so it suits me to be by myself. And I, I like doing the, the hands-on work. I mean, I'm not, you know, in, in most winemaking positions or at larger wineries anyway, the, anything above just a tiny winery, you would have a, a cellar crew or a production crew, where it's just me alone doing all the work. It, it fits me, but I did crave for that that interchange mm-hmm. of, of technical stuff, um, but in a very practical way. Uh, I, I went to Davis. I did that sort of didactic training. Um, I got through it barely, but I, I made it through. But I really like the talking to people about the experiments and the trials and the things that they've done, just the ideas that they've had in the, in the vineyard and the winery and, and want to talk about the results that they've seen, you know, it's Napa. So there's a lot of Cabernet, but the podcast gave me a chance to sort of grow those borders a little bit and throw a bit of a bigger radius and learn about other varieties and other grape growing. Um, and so by having a podcast, which is an hour or so long, it really gave me a chance to do the long form where I'm talking to people and, and getting deep and asking a lot of questions, getting people to set aside time, um, and leverage the audience so people that also want to learn winemaking it's i found there's a lot of people that are you know i call them the quitters it's kind of the core of my audience there's some you know wine industry people that listen but then there's the quitters and these are people in their sometimes 20s but mostly 30s and 40s sometimes 50s that have their career outside of anything wine that uh, are kind of tired of what they're doing looking for a change and gravitate to wine for whatever reason. Often it comes from from drinking wine and having that, just that all the cultural effects that we know that, that wine and the ways it can bring people together, people sort of long for that. Um, they want to learn how to make wine. And when you go out and try and figure out how to make wine in your 30s and you have a career, maybe kids, a mortgage, you're maybe stuck geographically or you know can't go off and go to a university program, um, I thought there was a real opportunity to use a, a podcast to to not teach because I'm not teaching, but I'm just interviewing. I'm talking about winemaking and people learn from that. Have you gotten feedback from, from people like that, that uh, tell you they've benefited from, from the podcasts? Absolutely. You know, not at first. It took a couple of years. There were a couple of years in the desert and that's fine because I had to sort of build the catalog. Um, But I think that first changed in 2017. So I started the podcast in 2014 and then 2017, I offered a class. And so still to this day, I do a three-day winemaking class each August called Deep Winemaking. Um, and I put it out there and, and, you know, I had spots for eight people. And I just thought, okay, I'll, I'll announce this on the podcast and see if people want to come. If people don't want to come, then, you know, I just pretend like it went well and, you know, never run the thing. But <laughs> people signed up. I had this uh, class of people coming in from all over the states. It wasn't just California. And I thought, okay, that's that's the proof of concept. I mean, I, I yeah. get emails and I, I, I request the, interna- the interaction by email. Um, so people ask me questions and give some feedback. Um, but having those classes was the real validation, I think, of the audience. Very nice. Yeah, what's, what's your worst nightmare as a podcaster? Oh, well, probably the... I've had two experiences now where I've recorded the podcast and near the end of the podcast or when I'm done editing, I hit the... Uh, I got a little sort of scrolling button on my recorder and if I delete a a specific file I can do that but if my finger slips I can hit delete all and so I've recorded a couple podcasts and then deleted them completely and so I had to go back and tell the person that I interviewed that it's it's just gone and that's that's terrible that's a waste of their time and and uh just felt terrible with that so 
do my best and did try you, to. Did you re-interview? I guess the the, the response is different from. from That's, each right. One. Yeah. That's right. That's right. We There's don't st- have to go in. <laughs> Still, one I'm after. <laughs> How about you? Tell me about the response because I know you're you're. Well, I'm still a little bit in the desert. That this is my third season. Um, I don't. I don't think I've gotten a single email about about the podcast. I run into people who have listened to them and say they really love them and they really got a lot out of them, but not not via email. So I don't know how to how to bridge that gap. And um, do you give out your email on the podcast? Sure. Okay. Yeah, but I only give it out once at the end. Maybe I should. Every three minutes, <laughs> say, you know, Daniel, Daniel at, at complainwine.com. Maybe it's too complicated an email. I don't know. But, you know, it's funny because there's something I do on our website because I'm so tired of wine writing, you know, uh, PR writing. So I write these vignettes uh, for each of the wine. I channel a writer that I'm lis- reading or listening to, like Alan First, who writes about um, 1939, the French resistance, some, you know, clerk who ends up, you know, running, running, uh, weapons for the, for the Maquis. And, and so I do that. And then suddenly they, they stumble upon a bottle of Compline Cabernet and they wax into descriptions. And I said to my son, Sam, you know, I don't know if anybody's reading these. And he said, do you love doing them, dad? I go, I love doing them. They're so much fun to write. He said, but then keep doing it. That's why we're doing this. We're doing this for for our own joy and our own legacy. And so I I feel that way about um, about the podcast too. And you know I think I've, I I think I mentioned this to you that I got notification from Simplecast that that uh, my podcast is number seven in arts and sciences in bulgaria <laughs> so I, I don't know who the but thank you you mm-hmm. people out in bulgaria um thank you for listening <laughs> i love you uh you're you're my true fans um and the other reason is that you know i i wanted to interview people i think the theme that i have is to is to find out everyone has a different path to mm-hmm. this to this vocation I think we all, we have a lot of things in common in that we, we do it because we like nature. We do it because we like producing a product that makes people happy. We do it because of the, the marriage of science and farming and art. But other than that, everyone has a different path and has had different influences and they each have developed their own aesthetic. And I think it's fascinating to find out what that is, what that path was, and and what went into them developing their own personal style. Do you mind if we uh, start with yours? Sure. And hear your path? Because I know you've been the interviewer, but maybe we can turn the tables yeah, here. Yeah, and turn the tables on me. Let's, uh, let's go back to the early days, but uh, I, I'm curious about what was your initial interest? Like, why did you want to even look into winemaking to begin with? You know, it was it. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. No. Um, it was for me. It was the the late sixties, and it was a time of great uh, tumult and and searching for my generation. And not unlike many, I had dropped out of college. I didn't 
uh, agree with the war, but I also didn't think that I should have a 2S deferment to do liberal arts at a school while I waited for you know the light to go on and figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I, I moved to Calistoga, up to Knights Valley. I, I talked myself into a job on a thousand acre property uh, in the, the defunct town of Kellogg as a gardener, as an organic gardener. And my girlfriend and I lived in this huge house, beautiful old house that had been part of the Foker winery up until Prohibition. And the, the stone building was still there to one side, the barn that had been the winery. And in 1970, the owner brought his foreman to lower, you know, the lower the axe on my neck and said, you know, Bank of America is lending us money. We've only got a few acres of vineyard, but we're going to plant lots more vineyard here. And we need the housing for for farm workers. Mm -hmm. And thinking quick on my feet, I said, well, what if I become a farm worker? And. And I think they figured this kid's not going to last a week, so we don't have to evict him. And you know that was now fifty-two years ago. <laughs> so I went to work in the vineyards. The foreman was a guy named John Rolary, who uh, is uh, was kind of legendary in that area. He had uh, been raised in Saint Helena. He'd married uh, one of the Montelli girls. Um, he turns out to be Corey Beck's uh, grandfather. I met Corey first when he was a toddler. And um, John and I became fast friends, and he was really my first mentor and showed me how to drive tractors and how to hook up discs and how to prune. And, and I just fell in love with it. And then Johnson de-escalated the war. I suddenly... The draft wasn't an issue, and I thought, huh, well, I could just follow in John's footsteps and eventually be a vineyard foreman, or maybe I should go back to UC Davis or go to college, and UC Davis would be the place to go. The other thing that was happening simultaneously is Earl Tholander, the great artist, lived in that area, lived on the crest of Murray Hill, and I became friends with Earl. And um, we were cutting wood together. That was, that was the deal. And one day he said, hey, Danny, do you want to make wine? And I thought, sure. And Earl taught me how to make wine. He made Zinfandel from Heritage Ranch. And so those two things were happening simultaneously, was making wine and being involved in, in vineyards. And when I went to Davis, that was the theme that I, that I saw. It disturbed me that people weren't combining the two, that there was viticulture well, to one they were side separated. and winemaking yeah. to the other. And it was a, a kind of a, a battle that had been going on, you know, between, I wouldn't let's say a battle, but infighting between, classically between Maynard Ameren and, and Albert Winkler, that uh, they were vying for, you know, the... Be, being head of the department. And the story goes that uh, Winkler asked Amarin to finally take over and, and 
be the chairman of the viticulture department. And he said, on one condition that you add an ology to the name. And Winkler said, yes, but it comes second. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, America is known as being separated, vineyard and winery. I mean, that's something that, that persists today. And I think it's taken on a new form. I think it's now in the form of the farm labor contractor. So even wineries that have a state vineyards, their own vineyards, often for the, the majority of the time, don't farm their They're own vineyards. That, that's own one vineyards. of the the ways that we try and hold CV up and apart from from others is we have estate vineyards, the estate vineyard that you know with the, the property where the winery is, but we are farming those vines ourselves. It's not a, a contractor coming in, and you know there's pros and cons to that, obviously, but uh, I think it's very special when you're you're close to the vineyard. Absolutely, and the when I got to Davis, the one person that seemed to bridge the gap was Harold Omo. Okay. And so that's who I hitched my wagon to. And and that, he, w- he was a professor of enology, right? No, he was a pres- professor of viticulture. He was oh. a he was Oh, Omo, yes, breeder. that's right, the breeder, yeah. right, yeah. before Andy Walker. But he he loved wine. He had a good cellar and he didn't really see grapes as an endpoint the way. Mm-hmm. And he'd spent time in Europe and he he loved it. He used to tell these great stories about the practical jokes that were played on him in the various chateaus. And um, we, yeah, that was an amazing connection. And I I worked with him uh, as a graduate. I was probably one of his last graduate students. So I know that Europe, specifically France and Bordeaux, are a big part of your story. How did that come about? Well, that actually, that's a perfect segue, Jim, because... I went to, from Davis, I went to Navarro Vineyards. Oh, I, I worked up in place. Anderson Valley. And I had vowed that once I paid off my student debts and once I finished my master's, I was one of those people that said, I'll finish my master's after I leave because I'm too busy here as a student. Once I'm out in the world, I'll have so much free time. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we know how that usually works out. Uh-huh. Uh, but I decided... I really made a deal with myself that I was not going to go on my my European walkabout till I finished my thesis. Okay. So I I went back to Davis. I, I quit Navarro. I worked part-time at Edmeads, and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And then I brought my thesis in and worked on it with Dr. Olmo, who was, had retired by then, I think, but still had an office. And... And I said, I'd like to go to France. And he said, well, I I have friends in Bordeaux and I will set you up. And I said, do I need to get work papers? He said, no, 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 it's not necessary. They'll just take you in and you can work there for a year. Because oh. I didn't want to just do a harvest internship. Right, right. I wanted to go for a year. So I started studying French. And fortunately, I was there working on my thesis and almost said, I've got this important phone call and I've got this group of French people from Cognac, who I promised to give a tour. Your French is pretty good by now. Please give them the tour. Thank goodness, because I got this, I got all their names. And then, you know, fast forward to July of 81, I arrived in France and uh, Mitterrand had just been elected and my job didn't exist. Oh, no. And the guy just said, you know, your... Um, Monsieur Baron, je m'excuse, mais, you know, there's there's no 
no work, thank you, good luck. And he hung oh. up, and I was sitting there. It's very funny story, Jim. I, Naked Wines, uh, I'm working on a project with Naked Wines to bring in some Bordeaux wines. Fast forward 41 years, and I was just in Bordeaux, and I called the friend whose home I stayed at, was at, she was married to the regisseur of Chateau Coutet in Barsac, and um, and we didn't like each other very, I mean, her husband and I were friends, and she really resented me, because she was eight and three quarters months pregnant, and her damn husband had brought in this American guy who was supposed to stay for a weekend and ended up staying for three weeks. And, and one day Mike, her husband came to me and he said, you need to get the hell out of here. My <laughs> wife's water's just broke. You know, you got to leave it. Well, since then, you know, they've divorced and Christine and I have become great friends. And, um, and so I called her and I said, I'm going to be in Bordeaux uh, I'll be in the city of Bordeaux for one one night that I could have dinner with you. And she said, well, I'm I'm watching my grandchildren, but my daughter Joyce is here from St. Bart's. Um, you should take her to dinner and you two should get to know each other. And we sat down and I said, so Joyce, you're the second one, right? She says, no, I'm the eldest. I oh. said, how old are you? She said, I'm 41. I said, oh, you're the, you're the one who was... <laughs> got you kicked out. You got me thrown out of the house. <laughs> but talk about coming full circle. Uh, that was that was really very special. Um, and then, you know, so I, I went to Bordeaux and I was able to work due to that connection with the group from Cognac. Okay. They helped me get uh, work during Harvest. I basically bummed around and learned the language and the customs for six months. And then I got on um, in Bordeaux for, I worked at six different chateaux throughout uh, Saint-Emilion, Pomerol, and uh, and a, an area called Moulis, um, which is just north of Margot. And I worked at a, at a great estate actually called Chateau Pujol and their sister winery, Chateau Arnaud. And and then Rob Davis of Jordan introduced me to Christian Moex, and th the rest was history. I within a few weeks was back on a plane to look at this vineyard that he thought he might buy or buy into. That was owned by the Lael, Robin Lale and her sister. They had just inherited it from the Inglenook estate. And and then I went back and worked for a year at Chateau Petrus and there, I really learned how grape growing and winemaking are integrated in the great wine regions of the world. And that was my touchstone and my inspiration for the rest of my career, applying that those sensibilities to making wine in California. When you say sensibilities, can I push on that a little bit further? What, it, what does that mean? Well, you know, the, the, the first... In 1982, when, when um, well, it even happened in 81, even before Petrus. In 81, I walked out into the vineyard with uh, one of the vignerons, not one of the winemakers, one of the vignerons, and I, and I said, oh, it looks like a good yield. And he looked at the clusters on the vines and he said, yes, we have a lot of wine this year. Grapes weren't even an endpoint. They were mm -hmm. even, not even a stopping place. That's just such a different mentality. Um, 
the idea that you alluded to that so much of what you do that affects the outcome of the fermentation happens with your pruning shears happens mm -hmm. with your canopy management with how you're regulating the crop and in our case with our choices of irrigation so so much of that in in my version of winemaking happens in the vineyard i'm not a chemist i'm not very big on doing a lot of manipulation after the grapes are crushed i try to do everything i can in the vineyard and in the decision of when to pick um i love the alchemy of the blending bench mm -hmm. i'm not going to say there's not and there aren't times when we have to intervene in one way or another to correct either our own mistakes or the mistakes of other or the the dirty tricks of mother nature um sure i mean we have all these tools in our toolbox and we use them as needed but ideally it's it's happening in the vineyard right when i was in my 20s just after i finished college i went to new zealand and i worked down in in marlboro um, which is kind of a very common thing, I think, for people of my yes. generation, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, especially to go down to New Zealand for a harvest. I, I went down for the year because, like you, I wanted to be, I wanted to be there for the the full growing season. So I got there in, in September, which was just as they were finish finishing pruning and tying everything down. I got to work there in the vineyard for the year, and then move over to the the winery for the harvest. Um, but there wasn't that sense of integration between. I should say where I was working, which was a larger, more of a production facility, didn't have that that integration of, of vineyard and winery. It was separated kind of more like what you see in, in California today. Um, and I learned a lot. It was a great experience. It was wonderful to be in New Zealand, and it's a great place to be 22 years old and have adventure. Um, but it taught me that I wanted to seek that out. And I knew that in order... Like the one guiding principle, I, I think, to, to seek that out in my future was to go to a smaller winery. Um, and I didn't necessarily get there quickly, but uh, I think ultimately I was able to arrive at that at CV Vineyard, where we're at this property that's 40 acres of planted grapevines. Um, you know, I'm involved. I'm the winemaker, but I'm involved in the vineyard. I mean, there's nothing going on in the winery. It's March right now. There's there's not even any racking to do. I could rack, but it would just be make work and it wouldn't be better for the wines. And so it's it's every day in the vineyard now. And I, I really, I don't know, that's just more enticing to me. That's more more of what I ultimately wanted to do when I, I thought about what winemaking could be. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I think it's important uh, to say there's, you know, I've interviewed people who have run big commercial wineries and you know, that's, that's important too. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's the path. I think we're similar in wanting to choose a path where we're involved in the full range. Um, I was fortunate enough that that could be done at Silver Oak, uh, for much of the, for, for all of the time I was there. And, and that's because it was a family-owned winery, number one. And number two, it was the concept, it was what Justin Meyer conceived of. And he was, he had the same background as I did. You know, he had studied with Olmo and he had 
more of a VIT background than a than a chemistry background. You know, when I had Nate Weiss on the podcast, Nate, who's now the the winemaker um, at Silver Oak, and, and your um, what's the word? Not you're the predecessor. What's he's your uh, successor? Successor. Thank you. Uh, he told me about how Silver Oak will take all their vineyard lots and put two barrels of that aside and then make the blends early is that an idea that that you came up with or was that a justin meyer uh, original idea well it the the grower lots was justin's idea mm-hmm. it was interesting because on the surface going from dominus to silver oak couldn't be more of a different image in the public you know you sure this this quintessentially French winery, and then you have this quintessentially American winery, one that's celebrated American oak and making a unique style, and the other that's... I couldn't even find the front door that one time I went to Domino's. You you can't (laughs) visit. They speak only in French when I was there, and I couldn't even find the front door. So yes, very different from Silver Oak. You can't get there from here. (laughs) You can't see it from the road. (laughs) Yeah, and yet... The basic stuff, like the attention to detail in the vineyard and the and blending before going to barrel was something that, that both properties do and also making wines of, of moderate alcohol. Mm-hmm. So there was there was actually a lot of the the underpinnings were the same. The finished product was very different. Uh, so yeah, Justin Justin was a believer in blending before going to barrel. Uh, of course, he was operating at a at a much smaller level than we ultimately ended up operating. <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll tell you why I thought that was interesting. It's because I'm sure there's a certain philosophy for blending early, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But you always, I'm sure, oh, if you had to blend, you have to have that in the back of your mind. What did that lot taste like? How did that evolve on its own? Sure. And so that's kind of a way to accomplish both goals, I think. Yeah, it is. And it, and it really informed us because what we did, and in fact, I, I just did it yesterday. Um, I still go up to Silver Oak. We tasted 55 grower lots from the 19 Alexander vintage. And what we did was right before the harvest of the next, so like in August, we would taste the previous years and we taste it open book. You know, we know what we were tasting. Mm-hmm. We'd organize all the Merlots, then the Cabernet Francs, and they'd go regionally. And, you know, just say, okay, how do we do with this picking decision? You know, what should we pay attention to this year um, as we're going in? So to kind of remind ourselves of what the previous campaign, because one of the funniest things, and I'm sure you see it, is in this business, we do things once a year. And mm-hmm. it's amazing how how much you forget. Oh. You, know, you come that first the mm-hmm. first grapes are coming. Where did we put the crusher last year? You know how do we, how did we right. get the SO two in? What <laughs> what are we doing here? You know, so if you if you're, if you're smart, you you send notes. You have notes for yourself that you can look up. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I thought that was a really good use of the grower lots. But then the other thing that was mind blowing, and I, I'm pretty sure that. I institute this, and also at that point, Christiana Schlossner was my uh, assistant, and uh, she and I uh, talked a lot about different ways we could utilize these kind of resources. And she's now the winemaker in Alexander Valley. Um, 
we decided that at the time of the release, which is four years later or five years later for the Napa, we would retaste the grower lots. And, and we would reference, you know, we taste them blind, first of all. And then as we would reveal each flight, we would look at what our individual and group notes were when we tasted them open book, knowing mm-hmm. what they were five years earlier. Um, and the thing that we found out that was most telling was lots that we had discarded and bulked out because they were veggie were, if they were veggie and thin and, you know, acidic and underripe, then yeah, they were still not rated well. But if they were, if they had been veggie when they were three months old, you know, when we made the blend, but they had good body and good color and good tannic structure, that five years later, they were fresh and lively wow. and varietal. Mm-hmm. And so what we learned was that the IBMP attenuates between the time we make the blend and the time the wine's released to the customer and that they added this liveliness and freshness to the wine. And so based on that, we stopped eliminating those. So we, we cal- recalibrated ourselves when we blended and we had to catch ourselves at first. You know, mm-hmm. you go, oh, no, I'm not, let's not put that one in. No, wait a minute, remember that lot, what it was like in the grower lot tasting. And then pretty soon it became second nature that, yeah, it's got, it's got great body. It's got good tannic structure. It's going to contribute. The other thing we learned, and, and this is borne out by sensory science that, you know, if, if you taste a finished wine and, and, and you get this punch of blackberry, and you think you're going to taste the components and you're going to find, you get a, Let's, let's even be more. You get a punch of blackberry and a hint of raspberry and some rose petals. You think as you go through the lots, you're going to, oh, there's where the blackberry came from and there's where the rose petal came from. And no, because you might have five lots that have blackberry, but they're just below threshold. Mm-hmm. When you blend them together, it pops above the threshold. And so you don't necessarily find that smoking gun when you taste the components but it ends up there in the blend. And that's the other aspect of why I like blending early is I think that when a wine comes out of barrel, it's probably at its highest point of oak expression. And then what's happening is you're blending to balance the oak instead of blending the base material of fruit and tannin and acid. And and so by blending young, yes, you, you could make a mistake but you're also not influenced by the oak component right and then your time in barrel becomes a time for these elements to marry and so what i always would say about silver oak is love it or hate it but never i've never heard anyone criticize it that it was disjointed right it was always very well knitted together because it had had those two years in barrel to to integrate. And the other point was since we were only making one wine at each facility, there was no impetus to say, well, 
let's not add the Merlot because maybe by the time we release, Merlot will have come back and we'll want a reserve Merlot. So let's wait and see. Let marketing tell us. It was never marketing driven. It was always to make the best wine we can at each of these two wineries. And, you know, it's it's a binary system. It's either in the blend or it's sold in bulk. So it greatly simplifies things in that way. Can we roll back to Dominus a little bit? Because I have, sure. have questions because that sounds like I'm sure there were some some difficult points. Um, and I don't necessarily want to focus on what was difficult, but you have a, um, a great French history in Bordeaux. And then Christian buys this property in in Johnville, in Napa. Right. Um, and that's kind of where we have shared history with Bill Seavey because he was working with, with Christian Wax as, uh, right. for and some setting, legal counsel. Setting up the, 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 the partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were some of the difficult aspects of, of a Frenchman or the French technical team coming in to work with uh, American grapes? And, you know, we both know some of the, the basic differences in ripeness between French and, and Bordelais Cabernet, but what were some of the, the early trials of, of making American wine with a French French history? Yeah. Well, there, that's, that's a great question, Jim. And I think one of the things that I still quote is Christian said, you know, it's going to take us 10, maybe 20 years to, to figure this out. It said, I, I don't know any great estate that, you know, instantaneously makes great wine. And so we need to get to know the land and we need to get to know the winemaking. Yes, are the French chauvinistic, uh, you think? I mean, it's the, the word has vin in it, you know, chauvin. <laughs> so um, the, the, uh, some of the ideas I thought were... Um, what's the word word I'm looking for a bit rigid Mm -hmm. and the idea of dry farming, it's got to be dry farmed. Well, I mean, Bordeaux's not dry farmed. It rains throughout the summer. Was there over irrigation and over fertilization in those days? Yes, of course, but that doesn't mean you you don't irrigate at all. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, and everything I'm saying to you, I've said to Christian, I, I think the path would have been easier with a little bit of irrigation thrown in because I remember tasting with Dmitry Chelichev and him saying, you know, it was either Dmitry or John Richburg in the day when we were selling grapes to Inglenook. And, and he said, you know, Andre could walk in to a flight of a hundred Cabernets and pick out Napanook. Um, he could probably pick out everything, you know. Uh, but when 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 he was asked how he could pick out Napanook, he said, it's the most tannic wine. <laughs> so those early Dominus, mm-hmm. you know, and I think the other the other difficulty was that Christian, as the, the emblemic Merlot winemaker, and Jean-Claude Barraway as our consultant, and uh, who are both of whom I adore and had... had uh, had meals with when I was just in Bordeaux, but they were coming from a Merlot sensibility from a, from a right bank sensibility and applying those ideas to making Cabernet from one of the most tannic vineyards in the Napa Valley. So it, and it did, you know, it, it took, you know, as ironic, I think that the first truly great 
vintage of Dominus was 91, which was the vintage where Philippe Malco was, was the intern. And that was our ninth vintage, right? So how far off was Christian? And then the 94 was gorgeous. And from there, it's just been, it, it's been a great run. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that was, wasn't unanticipated from a Californian standpoint. It's, oh, well, those first vintages, they were so tannic. Well, okay. So we were, we were figuring it out. Right. Yeah. Did, did you have access to any better barrels or better equipment because of the connections to Bordeaux? Hmm. Well, probably, I, I'm trying to remember if we, Mox had his own Cooper in those days, but I don't think we got any of the Petrus level barrels. I would have to, I, I think that's right. I could check with Chris Phelps and see if he remembers. To, we, to this day, I worry that we're getting the second rate the second barrels. Because the best barrels, just by French pride, uh, are going to stay in France. It wouldn't surprise me. but um, Not that we get bad barrels. I think we get yeah, great I, barrels. I, I, I don't see much difference having okay. worked with both. I think the thing that we were doing that was so unusual, first of all, and this was Jean-Claude's point of view, and Jean-Claude, when he, when he got out of uh, University of Bordeaux, one of his experiments, he worked for an experimental lab, and one of them was on acidification and different acids to use for acidification. Of course, they can add sulfuric acid. And one of the things that we never think about is adding lactic acid post-ML. Post uh, but tartaric is the harshest acid you can add. And so Jean-Claude was very opposed to acidification. And if you remember those days in the early 80s, people were really acidifying. It was the, the Davis mantra was to look for a target pH and, and mm-hmm. bring the wines down. And Jean-Claude hated that. And I remember the first the first vintage, uh, before Chris arrived, I, I did the first vintage myself. And I remember calling Jean-Claude, and this was pre-fax, pre cell phones, you know, and saying, Jean-Claude, you know, we have a pH of 3.9. And and, and he said, yes, Daniel. And I said, well, you know that the wine is much more susceptible to bacterial and and yeast infection, and and we're going to have a lot of trouble controlling. And he he said, Daniel, on ne peut pas faire des grands vins sans prendre les risques. You can't make great wine without taking risks. It's such a French, such a great, great approach to to our craft. And then the other thing was that that most of the time I spent in Bordeaux, I was doing barrel to barrel racking, mm-hmm. and I was working with the team at Petrus and their commercial seller Chez Montauroir on doing the soutrage traditionnel, and so that that was a a wonderful tool for transforming and and shaping these wines. Right. Literally, isn't that the Soutirage tool right that behind is, you there? That uh, is, on the, yeah. On that's one desk? I picked up, picked up at a at a at a brocante at a at a. Uh, it's 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 unfixable, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think the what are the benefits of this Soutirage, which is just a a punching a hole in the bottom, not quite the bottom of the barrel, because you want to be above on the, the head leaves. of the barrel, yeah, yep, on the head. Um, but it's a, a, a racking by gravity. Uh, is it just the gentle nature of the racking, the slowness? It's two things, Jim. It's it's that you're not pumping the wine. Mm-hmm. So 
you're clarifying. Well, it's three things, really. You're not topping. So the wine goes three months without topping. So it goes very anaerobic. It's actually pulling a vacuum. In those days, we were rolling the barrels to their side and using wooden bungs. Mm -hmm. Now with the silicone bungs, we can rack uh, straight up. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is it ridiculous to tight bung with a silicone bung and roll? Like what is... What is the point of that with the silicone bung? That there is makes... no point to that. Okay. Unless you don't trust your silicone bung. Can you, can you repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt, but okay. Is, is, is this, are you doing this? At no, Subaru? no, no. I, I see it all the time and, and no, there's I, no need. It's a hang up and no, and I think it's people a pain just don't understand that like there's a historical reason for it, but with yeah. silicone bungs. With, with wooden bungs, you had to do it because liquid seals Right. More easily than air. Mm -hmm. But the silicone bungs are airtight. And mm -hmm. no, I, I know for a fact because we've been doing it for, do I want to say 20 years? We've been doing it for at least 15 years at, at Toomey and Sam and I with Complain. And they they pull a vacuum. Right. You can see the heads pulling in from the bars on, on the Bordeaux Chateau barrels. So there's no reason to do it. I'm sorry for the interruption, but I do appreciate the clarification. Yes. Yeah. So you're not topping for three months, and then you're pulling the esquive. Esquive means to squirt. The esquive, and it's called a brocoreau in Burgundy, but in Bordeaux it's called an esquive. It's the plug on the head of the barrel, and you pull that out and very quickly replace it with the fontana bordelaise, which I wish people could see, but you're staring right at it. And then you transfer either with light air pressure or gravity to an empty barrel. And so that's anaerobic. And then the last three or four gallons splash into a crapaud, uh, what looks like a, a giant bedpan. Right. When I started doing it, many of the tools were wood made by the master of master coopers because it was very fine work. And then the, the crapaud was made from copper, enameled copper, like fine cooking cooking pots now well in about the 90s it transferred to stainless and now you can't even find those because the craftsmen are retiring and no one wants to do it mm -hmm. and there's less and less people in bordeaux uh doing soutirage it's it's a shame it's being lost so it started as it started before there was electricity in the cellars so it was a way to clarify the wine w without electricity. Um, they used a giant bicycle pump with a bore about like about uh, four inches. And then what they found was that it both preserved the high tone aromatics and then that last phase where you're splashing the wine into the crapaud incorporates just the right amount of oxygen for the tannins to soften. And the fact that you're passing through a bronze valve takes care of any reduction mm -hmm. in the wine. So uh, that's now illegal in the, Euro the European. Really? Yeah, they can't use bronze anywhere around wine. Maybe we should open your rosé. Yeah, sure. Can you reach that? So, okay, I got a question. That, that barrel that you're going into, the re receiving barrel, you say it's anaerobic, but that are you pre-gassing that barrel with any sort of inert gas? Or? Uh, you're burning SO2 in it. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And is that taking care of all the oxygen? Is that reading it of the oxygen? You know, what we found uh, at Toomey, where we're doing this with Merlot, is depending on the level of tannin and our perception of the 
reductive capacity of the wine. Sometimes we would blanket that barrel in nitrogen. Sometimes mm-hmm. we'd blanket the capot in nitrogen. Sometimes we would space out the uh, racking to four months. Sometimes what I'm doing with Complan now is I find that the period over harvest is the time when they when it gets stretched and yes. the SO2 drops and you have a tendency to get Brett blooms. So I'm topping from August to November, and then I resume the souterage, and that serves two purposes. It By eliminating a couple of the souterage during harvest, it keeps the SO2 levels up, and it reduces by two of the souterages because we find in the warmer climates, the wines have less capacity for taking in oxygen. Mm, right. In my career, let's call it 20 years, seen an evolution in American producers of Bordelais varieties, most notably Cabernet, a move away from racking. I think there was a traditional sense of quarterly racking. Like when I started at CV in 2011, I came in under the guise of, you know, your work is going to be harvest, all the other things that have to happen, and then quarterly racking. And little by little, I've been moving away from that to less and less racking. And all along the way, questioning, why were we racking? Uh, I have some theories on that. I think one, this is a little bit um, snarky, but maybe it's a way to keep a seller crew employed, give them something to do during the slow season. But also, okay, what, what does racking do? It, it can introduce some air, so potentially you can help soften the wine. You can bring wine back from being anaerobic to be a little bit more um, fresh, at least smelling. But, you know, is that important ultimately? I, I could argue that maybe it wasn't. And then you, I look at producers of other varieties, especially like Pinot Noir, who are, are generally on le, more lees, and, and not racking at all. And so I've done some experimentations of, of very little racking and sometimes no racking with Cabernet. And I got to say, I don't find there to be great differences. I don't find there's a great uh, benefit from lots and lots of rackings. But I know you have much more experience in this. So I'm, I'm very curious to know your thoughts. Well, I think there's an, a number of variables. I mean, not the least of which is the raw material, what we're what the vineyard is and what the varietal makeup is. I think there's also the, the level of ripeness of the fruit. I think if, if one is making a riper style of Cabernet that's become very popular in Napa, then the wine is probably less um, able to absorb oxygen. And conversely, like I know the wines that Sam and I are making at 13% alcohol tend to be a little nervy and Mm -hmm. the racking helps round them out a little bit. But I think I I like your approach of experimenting because, you know, when I just got back from Bordeaux, I mean, people are aging on Lees now, Cabernet. That's a new thing, right? That's a new thing. I I, I haven't seen that before. And one of the things that's tricky in our business is to differentiate what's the latest fad from what's actually doing something and if it's something that you want to do. I once said if if it got to the point that to be successful in the wine business, 
I had to ferment Cabernet on the skins and barrels that I would retire, you know, so I might too. It's just, that's just too, it's too, too much for me. But one of the things that Jean-Claude talks about is as, as the climate warms, that the level of that, the, that the, the balance of polysaccharides is changing in the wines and that the wines do not absorb oxygen in the way they used to and do not need oxygen in the way they used to. I think the other factors are using thin stave barrels or using thick stave barrels. Um, are you keeping up? Some people are keeping a portion of the wine in tank to bring freshness in. Mm. And because they find the wines seem a little tired, they seem like they're pre they're, they're, they're older than they should be. So I think, and then you throw in the vintage variations that what worked great for you in 2011 is not right. going to work great for you in 2012. But as I like to say, this isn't brain surgery. You know, we, if, if we're off by a millimeter, it's not like anybody's going to die or walk around with, mm-hmm. without their vision or their hearing, you know. So it, it, it's part of, the, part of the art, I think, of winemaking that there's a certain amount of inexactness to what we do and what we understand. I had heard, just by rumor, so this may not be true at all, that at Silver Oak, you guys were doing a lot of racking tank to tank prior to going to barrel. So this is post-fermentation prior to barreling down. Is that true? And if so, what was the, the benefit there? Is that clarification? Not a lot. I would say three rackings. Okay. You know, three weeks apart. Okay. I think as long as the wine is throwing sediment, I mean, that's something that I still feel with the Bordeaux varieties until I'm proven wrong, that these are great for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. But I think my training and what I saw in Bordeaux is as long as you're dropping lees, then keep racking. And when you're... when you've got the wine clarified, then at that point, the only reason to rack is to expose a tannic wine to oxygen so that you soften the tannins. That was the some of the old sort of protocol of Stag's Leap wine cellars, which uh, from what I could tell had come down from Andrei Chelichev in his consulting decades prior. So we did a lot of racking prior to going down to barrel. And then once wines were in barrel, there was no racking. And I just found that odd only because I didn't know any other producers doing that. But it worked. worked well right. for us. So, But I think that maybe initiated some of my questions about why are we racking? When are we racking? Are people thinking about when they rack? Are they racking? Because that's the historical model for... Yes. Moving wine. Yes. To yeah. Both both sides of that question. It is my You know, I think it, it, it's also very dangerous to generalize in this business. Yes. Because some people are doing things because that's what their idol is doing and that's what their consultant told them. And others are doing it because they've done experimentation and they have a, a sense of a vision of what they want. And others are doing it because that's how it's always been done, you know, and there's probably a few other scenarios we could think of. My friend Tyler Thomas makes wine down in uh, in in Santa Barbara County and often talks. So he's been on the podcast a number of times. Often talks about the unquestioned answers 
that we have in winemaking. And I think there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, there are. Let's take a short break. The Winemaker's Journey is sponsored by Compliment Wine, a partnership between my son Sam Barron and myself. Our mission is to make artisanal, moderate alcohol, single vineyard wines with vibrancy and finesse. Visit us at complantwine.com. C-O-M-P-L-A-N-T wine.com. And by nakedwines.com, a passionate community of the world's best winemakers and wine drinkers, changing the way great wine is made. I am proud to be among those winemakers. Try the 2019 Francophone Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon and the 2020 Francophone Russian River Pinot Noir at nakedwines.com. And now, back to the podcast. So, let's turn the tables back to you, Jim. All right. So... I'll try not to answer your questions with more questions. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in 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 the winemaker's journey, my ongoing theme is how people develop their winemaking aesthetic. So, one of the questions I like to start with is is how how would you describe your winemaking aesthetic? What is what are you looking to do when you approach a vintage? Well, I'm starting to squirm in my seat a little bit because I I think I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, in a way, I've not had to approach that question directly at CV because there's a strong sense of house style. And so I know that and I think any good enologist can come in to, to a winemaking situation and understand what the style is and then be true to that. And I think that's that's your role as a winemaker for a house with a that's strong style. That's a professional winemaker. That's right. what you do. So now in making wines with naked wines, which is kind of a... a new project for me. I've been doing this for, for two years um, and starting the Territorium brand, which is a brand that's grown out of the Inside Winemaking podcast. We've had to face those questions directly. And so what is my aesthetic? And I think the best way to start thinking about that for me in, in any way, if you're sort of tracing back into my brain, is to think about what I like to drink. Um and I like wines with brightness and freshness and real varietal typicity. I think over for tasting wines for 20 years, I, I, I really appreciate wines that taste like their variety. And so that comes down to, I think, the main question a winemaker has to ask themselves is, is when do you pick those grapes? What's your level of ripeness? We were talking before we started right. recording about... You know, I like your idea of there is no ripeness. There's the, the time at which the winemaker picks the grapes to make their style of wine. But you have to be cognizant about the style that you want to make. I think that's the most important question going into any production situation. And so we're drinking rosé so right now. So for rosé, to me, it needs to be bright, light, and fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, not heavy, have some nice bright flavors, but not necessarily a lot of flavor. And so... That informs, you know, what, what grape variety you're going to use. Rosé is kind of cool because 2021 I made rosés from Pinot Noir, Grenache, and Cabernet Sauvignon. So this is Monterey County. So is, what, what part of Monterey County is this? So this is, is not a specific vineyard, but it's a, a blend of vineyards from, from Monterey County. And the idea being I wanted to have, um, I wanted to, 
to make a rosé from a place that's really close to the Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. because to me that evokes <clears throat> the freshness. And in Monterey, it's a it's a cool, if not cold, town. It, it's windy, um, and so I thought that's just perfect because that is on a hot day. That's what rosé can bring. It can bring freshness and coolness. And there's a, a little touch of salinity in this wine mm-hmm. that, that that I I really like, and it's unusual because it's not a not that's not a typical pinot rosé character but i think it comes from that from right that exposure and i wanted to pick <clears throat> pinot noir early enough to retain a lot of acidity but i've also found that that pinot noir can be difficult in that when you pick the grapes the acidity can sometimes i don't want to say crash but can really diminish in that that settling tank and and during fermentation and so yeah. you sometimes have to head it off a little bit and pick earlier than than what you might think um, relative to working with other varieties, like with Grenache, it seems to hold the acid that it has there. With with Pinot Noir, I found like you lose a significant amount of acidity, and I'm not sure exactly technically what's what's going on, but I, I've I've found that yeah, like, that's an interesting observation. Um, and this is this has not gone through ML, right? No, no. Yeah. So does more precipitate out? Is it? Uh, yeah, I don't know the answer. I- but I, I know what you're saying. And it's also the difference between vineyard samples and, and what right. you get in the tank. Right. But it brings up a really interesting point. And it's, we were talking before we started about both being winemakers for Naked Wines, about interacting with the, with the angels, as they call them, with, mm-hmm. the, with the consumers. And as someone who's always been somewhat insulated by my marketing team and my sales reps, sure, at Silver Oak, you meet the consumers on release day, but, you know, you have two minutes with each of them. And mm-hmm. with the Naked Wine, it's, you're really, people really are making these open-ended comments or open comments about, about your wine. And one of the things that, that came out that was really interesting, and I, I think that I learned it from, from them, Someone was saying about my francophone, oh, you know, this this wine's a little light for Napa Cabernet. And and then I responded to them, well, you know, I, I never intended for this to be a big, broad Napa Cabernet. This is a counterpoint to that. And and his comment, which I thought was so so cool, was, Oh, now that I know your intent, I can better appreciate the wine. Mm-hmm. And you know, we have this this idea that there's something called absolute quality in wine that the 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 wine critics are going to taste blind and they're going to evaluate these but in truth i think the winemaker's intent is i don't know if we could say it's part of the terroir but it's part of i think it's important to know what the winemaker's intent is when you're judging a wine for its quality because i think of course, you know, did you like it? Was it a pleasing beverage or not? But what were they trying to do? Did they have a vision and did they achieve it? I think is an important an important thing. So I like what you said about about the rosé and I, and I think uh, I think you achieved it. I think we're both we both have a glass of the rosé in, in our hand people. So uh, sorry about that. <laughs> Jim Jim can uh, you can find find it at nakedwines.com under the the jm duane label now you said there what was the other label that you're you said I, to, the other brand is called territorium wines territorium yep and that's uh, i like that yeah it's uh it's a play off the word 
terroir as we're yeah. exploring different terroir over France, or not for France, over California. And so in 2021 was the first uh, vintage that we crushed grapes. And so we have we have a Riesling from Santa Lucia Highlands. We have a Pinot Noir from Anderson Valley, which I know you have a background with. Uh, we have Cabernet Franc from Alexander Valley. Um, a Rosé of Grenache from El Dorado. We were lucky enough to pick the sort of the, the day before the Caldor fire came oh in and ruined the rest of the, the vintage for that, that vineyard, which was really sad, but it was, it was nice to be able to, which to vineyard is that Starfield vineyard. It's a really, really beautiful vineyard. I mean, it was the first time I've worked with Grenache and I was st- still shocked by walking out and seeing these, you know, the, the giant clusters with the big berries and the grapes were, some of the grapes were still green and I've never picked green grapes to make a wine before and i thought you you can't do this but it was one of those vintages you know every vintage teaches you something isn't that true and this vintage one of the great lessons was sometimes you you gotta get past color you if it's obviously you're not gonna pick cabernet sauvignon to make a red wine with green grapes but grenache to make a rosé Green grapes are fine. Yeah. You're not going to have to worry about pyrazines. You're not going to have to worry about issues. But or you, adding acid. Or exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but to your your point about intent and communicating what your intent is, I found in making the rosé for naked wines, there are a couple things were important. One was color of the wine. Uh, with rosé, you, you have to be very intentional about your color because you certainly do. Yeah, I mean, you can you can I call it dialing up your color, dialing up or down. You can do that by some of your practices you know, before fermentation or during fermentation, then obviously blending after you can add some color, but with, um, like bottle style, when I was going back and forth with the designers from naked wines, they had first pitched me on a, a hawk style bottle, like Riesling. And I thought it looked really good. They did a mock-up and, and it looked nice as a package. But then my wife said, you know, when I see a bottle like that, it looks like Riesling and Riesling is sweet to me. And so I would expect that wine to be sweet and my wine's dry so I thought, oh, that's that's okay. I don't want to have people, you know, expecting a sweet wine when it's not sweet. And I think I also maybe did not communicate that well enough in that my first vintage with Naked Wines with the rosé. Um, because you, you only have a, you know, Naked Wines does a really good job of distilling the like sort of technical notes on each wine. And they keep right. it very minimal. And I think that's great because I think many producers produce these long-winded PDFs of, the winter started with much rainfall and we had a perfect spring and this summer, whatever. And then, and then it's like an ad lib. And then we achieved perfect phenolic ripeness, right? As we pick, they're, they're boring. They're too long. Rosé or naked wines does a good job of, of making them concise, but also with rosé, you have to be very specific about your level of sweetness, especially because people have preconceived notions based on their experience with rosé, if it's sweet or dry. So I want to be very clear that it's this dry. And so when I was writing my, uh, you know, your production files that you fill out for Naked so they can help communicate your, your wines, I put it over and over in bold. This wine is dry. We have to let people know to expect this wine is dry because if I just don't want to disappoint someone. Right. Um, and it's cool with Naked Wines because you were talking about the feedback that you get is different than in-person feedback because it's on a computer or often people are doing it on their phone. And so people are a little bit more honest or a little bit more blunt. And so you get quite a bit more negative feedback than you would person to person. Maybe a little too blunt. Uh (laughs) So it takes a bit of a thick skin. Yeah. But, um, but I do appreciate the volume of feedback. That's really quite nice. Yeah, it is. It is. So what would you say you had mentioned um, off mic that at first you had, 
difficulty finding mentors that when you yeah. got into the business, into wine production, you, I'm trying to remember how you said you were young and you didn't really know where to look. Just so I so grew talk, up, talk about that a little bit. It's exactly right. I grew up in Salt Lake City with no connections to the business, but I did figure out young that I wanted to make wine. I always knew that I wanted to work outdoors. I wanted to work with plants. That was just a, I've always felt pulled to plants. It's a real compulsion. Um, I did some fermentation when I was young, and I was just very fortunate to understand that I wanted to get into winemaking. But I had to go to college. I went to college at Gonzaga University in Eastern Washington, which had a little bit of an industry. Um, I wasn't. I knew that ultimately I wanted known for its basketball team. That, <laughs> as I was there, that's when the, the change happened. And uh, what was that? Ninety eight or ninety nine? Ninety eight, I think. Ninety nine. But um, uh, the first job I had, I applied for a winery that was in. It was like a you know a harvest job in Spokane, and I didn't get the job. But I called him back and said. I, I really just want to learn. You don't have to pay me. Can I come out and just work? Um, and I'd actually seen a picture that you posted on your Naked Wines profile yesterday of, of one of your early vintages. I believe it was at Petrus, where you're at the end of this, look like a very old distemmer, and you're scraping the, the rachis off the distemmer. Right. That's what I did for an entire harvest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I got tendonitis in my forearm. <laughs> and so I was so excited to be working at a winery and around grapes, but I just wasn't... Uh, learning anything I you know I was going to school so I was working part-time but just didn't get uh, I needed to work full-time and so when I finally got a full-time job in New Zealand uh, in the vineyard I learned a ton and I had a mentor there and that was fantastic when I went to the winery I was just in a big production facility and I was one of many temporary workers so I never spoke to a winemaker never had a chance to ask questions things like that um Came back, went to UC Davis, worked at another big production facility in California where it was the same thing. The only time I talked to the winemaker was on my first day as he walked me over to the, the vineyard team, you know, and I became a, a sampler and I never, never learned anything. And I had this, I became very frustrated mm. because that's now like two and a half seasons in a winery and I haven't had a chance to ask a single winemaker a question, wow. you know. Wow. And I know, and I'm hearing from other places, other people working at small wineries where they're, you know, they're integrated with the, either the winemaker or the winemaking team. I mean, you can learn, you know this, as much from a cellar master or an assistant winemaker or someone that has experience. You don't necessarily have to work with a winemaker. You need to work, be with someone who's done the cycles. Right. And seen some vintages. And so I was just very frustrated. And the first time I had a good mentorship was in 2004 when I finished UC Davis and I took an internship at Robert Mondavi Winery in Oakville. And that was the first time. And I, at that time, was very specific. Took the job because I was going to get to work with a specific person. And, you know, sat down and um, every day I worked and had lunch often with the winemaker and there were multiple winemakers at Robert Mondavi and they were fantastic and I finally got to learn and it was great and I was just kind of like begrudging about having wasted some time because I didn't know where to go so now if people ask me where to start which is a very common question I get because of the podcast I the best advice I think is to, to find a small winery mm. because you're just going to be more connected to the team and so by extension, when I have people come to work with me, I hire two people per year now to work harvest with me. I want to find people that want to learn winemaking. I don't want people that don't want, they're not, you know, some people are looking for the highest wage in the valley, things like that. I purposely don't have the highest wage because I want to weed those people out. 
um, I want people that are reliable, smart, they're fun to work with, but I really want people that want to learn winemaking because I'm going to teach as much as I can because I'm trying to compensate for all those years of, of my wasted uh, early 20s. Mm, mm. And so who who st- stands out for you and your memory at Mondavi as, as, as great mentors? Well, I work with Richard Swalski. He was uh-huh. the the, uh, the Cabernet and, and the Bourlet winemaker. Yeah. Uh, and he made the Sauvignon Blanc, so we got to work with the Block Sauvignon Blanc and Tocolone. Nice. Um, and he was great. And there was no question that was, was too far off. And so he he not only taught me a lot about enology, but he taught me how to work with... Because Robert Mondavi was a publicly held company right? at, at that point in time. <clears throat> and it was 2004, so that was started out as normal Mondavi and halfway through harvest it was going through the the uh, buyout by constellation so mm. Got mm. a little bit um, tough times yeah. yeah for them yeah which was interesting to witness as a young guy I was kind of on the outside I was an intern so I was under the radar sure but he taught me how to work as a team because he was a winemaker for the you know some of the red programs and the Sauvignon Blanc um, Rich Arnold was running the Chardonnay and, and some of the Pinot Noir. Gustavo Gonzalez was actually doing some of the Pinot Noir as well. But then we worked with Jean-Vierre Janssen, who is the director of winemaking. I think she's still there today. And she was fantastic, too. I mean, I remember times out walking in Tokelon where we have those, you know, those low vines. So the vines come up to your shoulders. And so you can, we were walking through as a team and we got to talk because you can see over the canopy. Um, in Everyone was available. Everyone was available to answer questions, and they wanted me to learn. They wanted me to go on and do well, and that was really exciting. And I took that away. It was like, I have to be that for other people. A, I have to learn. Like, you can't mentor until you you have some experience yourself, so I needed to go do that. But um, they were great. And then I worked for seven years at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, which was was run by Warren, but I didn't have much exposure to him because he was more of a, a leadership role of the entire company. It was a bigger right. company. Uh, but Nikki Proust there was kind of, she was probably the most important mentor in my, my winemaking oh, career. she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, we were making, ultimately while I did want to end up at a smaller place, having that experience at a, at a winery, which was, you know, call it 50 to 100,000 cases, somewhere in the call it medium size, you have a lot of exposure to a lot of vineyards. And that means great wines and great perfect grapes, but also a lot of problem issues too. And you have to, it's great to be an enologist or an assistant winemaker and watch as a winemaker deals with all the issues that comes up. Yeah, I think probably it's good to do a bit of both Mm -hmm. in your formative years. Mm -hmm. Because like you say, you get exposed to a lot of different things and a lot of different issues that... If you're in an estate vineyard, it might come up once in 20 years. But when it does come up, you say, oh, yeah, I remember that one vineyard. This would, used to happen every year. And remember how, how mm-hmm. uh, Nikki dealt with it or, yeah. Well, so, in, in filtration, filtration, I get, I'm sure you get questions about filtration all the time. And the answer for filtration is filter when you need to. But you got to understand when you need to exactly. filter. And I don't have a dogma about filtering. I guess my dogma would be is, don't do it if you don't have to. Yeah. But but do when, it if you have to. When do you have to? That's yeah. that's an, in order to get a wine that tastes like fruit and, exactly. and not <laughs> and not spoilage exactly. to, to the consumer's mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um well, there was something I was going to say. Oh, I, I know what I was going to say. We and I can't remember if we talked about it on on or off mic. 
But I think one of the things that I find um, quite quite reassuring is that you know Robert Mondavi was very open and very invested in educating people, and we talked about how he took Warren under his wing when Warren came out from Chicago as a professor and and uh, was very open. I, I want to learn winemaking so I can start a winery. And and Bob Bob was happy to take him in, and he felt that, you know, he used to say a lot, a rising tide raises all boats. Mm-hmm. Better to have good, competent people making wine right. in Napa Valley than the reverse. And so that that culture, that that was still in the culture at Mondavi, e- even as it was transitioning to Constellation, and that people were open and helpful, and that Genevieve carries that on, and and uh, and that there was that spirit of fostering growth in in others coming into the business. I mean, how many people have come through Mondavi? Unbelievable. The, yeah, the I know what, almost fifty years, more yeah. than fifty years now. Yeah, like, like it's it's in part, you know, I've heard of people calling Behringer University, but I think Mondavi and maybe Stagsleep Wine Cellars could could Very be like much that, so. that same thing. There's yep. or BV. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Any great bottles that... A bottle that, that pulled me into winemaking. It was always vines and plants that pulled me into winemaking. Mm. There was one wine that I had consistently when I was in New Zealand and when I was not making a lot of money, so it was not... And plus, in New Zealand's very very provincial and that there was very little... There was no American wine available and very little European wine. But they did have the one of the Gigal... Uh, tiers of, of wine. It's called Belarus, I uh-huh. believe. Um, it's just sort of like a, a Rhone level AOC wine, um, but I think we could get that for about fifteen dollars. And it was it was it was fruit, but it was it had a lot of complexity with the fruit. I mean, some I'm not sure if it was complexity from from Syrah or maybe some microbiological. And I don't mean that in, in a bad way. Sure. I believe it was a it very much gave um, a rise to some of the retrona- retronasal flavors. So it was fruit up front, but just a very interesting set of flavors that, you know, chronologically or temporally, you get a, a full suite mm. of experience. And I, that reminds me of traveling all over the, especially the, the East Coast of, of South Island and New Zealand. Yeah. How about for you? You have special bottles? You've had so many oh, great bottles. Well, I, I, and I probably told the story on this podcast before, but it, it's always worth repeating. Uh, there, there's there's quite a few. And, and there's one I regret that I don't remember the name of the wine, but I remember the moment. But anyway, this one was a, was a 45 uh, Mouton. And um, Christian invited me to a dinner where someone had found a bunch of it was it was the uh, was it black monday in in it was in october in the early 90s when the stock market crashed oh 1987 no it was it was before that okay because i wasn't working with christian in 1997 oh you said 87. 87 yes that would have been it and this fellow had a restaurant in san francisco and he'd bought someone's full cellar out of Silicon Valley. And in the cellar was non-vintage Petrus. Wow. So no vintage on the cork, authentic labels, um, authentic bottles, no vintage. 
and he figured it must have been the war years, and mm-hmm. so he figured it must have been forty-five. Mm-hmm. So he put on a a dinner, and he served a suite of forty-five Bordeaux. As he priests before that was fifty-three Burgundy, you know, yada yada. And we were with uh, Suwa Newton and I am Pei's uh, son, Didi, uh, and Christian and myself. I'm trying to remember who else, if Chris Phelps might have been. I don't think Chris was there. And Christian reached around uh, Suwa and tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Daniel, faites attention, you're about to taste the best wine of your lifetime. And this 45 mouton was like someone had taken fresh blackberries and cassis and just crush them in their hand and shove them under your nose. Wow. It was, it was 45 years old. It was extraordinary. And then of course, Christian is very theatrical. He, he knew once he looked at the bottles that they were authentic 45s because they had a Belgian importer's uh, neck sticker on them. Mm-hmm. And he knew that they had sold barrels of wine to this uh this importer was that back when were, were wines being sent in barrel and bottled on site with it being bottled in bordeaux well certainly the war years were tough because you know at 45 they they couldn't get glass they couldn't get yeah. corks and so probably the negociants were much better equipped to bottle mm-hmm. if in jean-claude's podcast he talks about yeah, I think it was really a little later in the 60s that people started bottling at the chateaus. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the irony, of course, was that the that the, the negociants and the importers, especially the British, probably had better bottling lines, had better understanding of, of SO2 additions, had, <laughs> had better corkers, so that the wines that were bottled at the Chateau were probably inferior to the ones that were bottled mm-hmm. by, by the importers and the négociants. So that, that's, that, that's the irony uh, of that. But then it became very... Uh, and he, he talks about the, that Peinot really brought on the, the introduction of trained winemakers or the trained enologists mm-hmm. to the top chateaus, and Jean Claude was really who gra- he graduated from the University of Bordeaux in nineteen sixty two, I think. So he was the first generation following Peinot as a professor, who were actually trained university trained winemakers with strong backgrounds in sanitation and chemistry. And I'm sure, I mean, just like all fathers and sons have clashes. I'm sure he ran into his own resistance in bringing in new ideas and, and some modernization. Well, we, you should just listen to the podcast yeah, because he talks about that he um, he learned quickly not to do that. And, and as mm-hmm. he said, he and Jean-Pierre Moex had very similar palates. And he said, because otherwise, you know, he would yeah. have said, you know, young man. Right. Nice, nice seeing you. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. Go to fired. California for twenty years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, they agreed on what the wines should taste like, mm-hmm. and then he had the good fortune to um, have a cellar master who started at Petrus in '54, and Jean Claude started in '64, and so they brought him in full time, Jean Vessier, and he was the man who trained me when okay. I got got to. Uh, got to Petrus in, in 81. So, um, yeah, all these wonderful cycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
do you have any, I know you're working with Sam, your son. How's, how's that relationship now that it's not just family, but professional? Yeah, you know, Sam, when you interviewed Sam when he was at Leloon and, and, yeah. and working in that. And he, you know, he matured a great deal running your own business and introducing natural wines and dealing with the the positives and the negatives of, of, of the natural wines. And you made a great point. The, there's a lot of people in natural wine where it's a dogma, yeah. you know, we're not going to filter. We're not going to add SO2 or, and it's appropriate for some wines. And I give the example of the Complant wines we make. We, we, we make a Linda Vista Chardonnay that generally comes in at about 3.1 pH. Wow. Really? You know, we, we, pick and it says sam's and that's the way we divide it up sam is in charge of the pinot i mean it's in charge of the chardonnay and i'm in charge of the cabernet and we made pinot for from 17 to 19 so we made four vintages of pinot and we've decided to drop that we love the vineyard san lucia highlands but we feel that we want to focus on napa and we want to focus on the dominant varieties in napa but in a style that's we consider unique and modern. We're not going back to making wines the way they were made in the 70s. Mm-hmm. We are demonstrating that wines of finesse and delicacy and liveliness can be made from the traditional Napa varieties from Napa Valley soils. So, you know, a wine like that, I mean, they're organic grapes. The only thing we add is SO2. It's indigenous yeast, indigenous malolactic. We do no, no fining we bottle unfiltered. It's a 3.1 pH. What the hell's going to happen to it? Mm-hmm. The Pinot Noir from a sustainable vineyard farmed by Mark Pisoni, the Pisoni Francioni partnership, right next door to Gary's, beautiful soils. Uh, we probably are the pit first to pick the vineyard. It comes in at 3.3 pH. We Is that kind of your, your guiding? Principle mm-mm, for mm-mm. okay, it's my guiding principle for whether to filter or not. Okay, it's <laughs> <laughs> good to know. So we can maintain a 0.6 molecular at okay. at at twenty twenty five parts mm-hmm. twenty parts of SO two. Okay, mm-hmm. so we run a scorpion on that wine, and if we don't see anything to be scared about, we bottle it unfiltered, which we've been able to do every vintage. Mm-hmm. We make a Mount Viter Cabernet. It comes in at three point eight pH. Right. As juice, as grapes. No, as finished wine. Okay, okay. I I'm not going to bottle that wine unfiltered. Yeah. To have a a point four molecular, I'd have to have fifty five parts mm-hmm. SO two free. It would taste like burnt matchsticks. If I didn't, I know I would have a Brett bloom. So that wine gets filtered. So it's we're not dogmatic about it. We do what's what's necessary to deliver wines that. To your point, taste of the variety, mm-hmm. taste of the vintage, taste of the terroir, and are pleasant to drink. I think that's that's using the least amount of intervention that's appropriate for, for each of the wines. And you were asking about working with Sam. So since Sam, Sam matured a great deal, and he'd probably say I matured a great deal too, but w- we were ready to work. It, it coincided that when I retired from Silver Oak, he sold his share in Leilun. He was working for Kivelstadt. Jordan Kivelstadt was open to him doing something else as well. 
And we looked at each other and said, let's, why don't we do something together? And so that's, we're very excited. It's, he's really a pleasure to work with. And, and, you know, the first vintage 17, we got to the Cabernet, we'd made the Chardonnay and the Pinot without adding yeast. And I thought the last time I didn't add yeast to a fermentation was the 82 Petrus. That, <laughs> that turned out pretty well. So these, these wines are fermenting so, mm-hmm. so great. We had actually bought yeast. And, oh, you had it. And Sam said, are, you know, are you going to add that? And I, I said, no, no, let's, let's go indigenous. And so every vintage since then has been indigenous yeast. And we're super happy with the wines. You don't often hear of fathers and sons working so smoothly. That, well, it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear. Yeah, Sam, we, that I tell a great story. I said, okay, you do the Chardonnay and, and, I, and I'll do the Cabernet. And, you know, why don't you do the Pinot? Because you've been, you know, I've, I've made a lot of Pinot over the years, but you're kind of more in the trenches with it. And I've picked this great vineyard out of all the vineyards. We made it to me. I really love this. And, and Sam turned to me and he said, Dad, if I am the lead on the Pinot, I choose the vineyard. And that could have been the end of the partnership right there, right? You know, how dare you question that? (laughs) And I I looked at him and I said, point taken. Mm -hmm. Good point. Mm -hmm. Uh, I apologize. Why don't we go look at the vineyard together? And and what we ended up doing on the Pinot is I pretty much did the vineyard visits and the decisions in the vineyard and and he he ran the the fermentations. And so we kind of, you know, every rule has an exception. Mm-hmm. But now that we've discontinued the Pinot, then then uh, we, we've got this clear division of labor. Right. It's like <laughs> and, a good measure, a good marriage. And oh, it's really clear, you know, like if I'm the one at the winery and 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 the lab guy said, I just ran the chromatography and the, and the Chardonnay's done with ML, I'm not going to tell him what SO2 to add. I'm going to text Sam and say, okay, ML's done the shard. What do you want me to tell Miguel to do with the, mm-hmm. with the SO2? It's really clear cut. I mean, in an emergency, of course, we're both going to react. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's been really healthy. And yeah, so that's, that's what we're doing. I'm a bit jealous. I, I, I would love to have a project to do, to, to work with my father. We, we have a different careers and we're very different people, but... Uh, that would be really sweet. Yeah, well, you, you, you have a son, though, don't you? Or a daughter? Two, two, two daughters. Yeah. Well, there's time, Jim. Yeah, we'll see. We'll you see. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what the best thing is? We I got the, the Nudivan, the, the smell, the aroma kit. Yeah, yeah. And I, I pull that out with both of my daughters. And that's got 54 aroma standards. And it, it's fun because you get to smell all these individual, like, uh, purified samples. But it really just shows you how brains work. My daughters can remember the individual aromas. They can name them three times as good as I can. They can get yeah. three from one that I can get. And you would think that I've been a winemaker. I've been, I'm, I'm not gifted sensorily, but I, as a winemaker, you're forced to pay attention to what you smell, right? You're, 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 yeah. you're yeah. focused. And they're so much better at recall to, to understand that, that connection from brain to word. I well, and at that age, they're 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 yeah. learning machines. Right, they are learning machines. Mm-hmm. Their brain tissue is still so so malleable. Mm-hmm. We're dinosaurs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. But I get frustrated when I can't. You know, I can't find the word for oh, a scent. 
Yeah. And, yeah. And, it's the worst. And, and mixing up chocolate and vanilla to this day drives me crazy. Oh. But 50% of the time I get it wrong. Have you done the Alexander Schmidt? I don't know if he's still doing it, the, the perfumist. No, no, I haven't done that one. Oh, yeah, that's, heard that's, that's really good. If he's still doing it, I, I heard rumors he was make doing so well blending mm. that he, he may not be doing it. And there's a great story about that because Todd called me up from, from Dominus and he said, do you want to schedule a, a session with Jean-Claude's personal trainer? And And I said, Jean-Claude started to work out. He has a person. What's the personal trainer doing here in California? And Todd started to laugh. He said, no, 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 no. His olfaction trainer. Oh, wow. And and so Alexander was a, a professional perfumer. Mm-hmm. And he he didn't like the the culture of, of perfumery. And he somehow got referred to Jean-Claude and said, you know, do you think winemakers would be interested in in learning how we perfumers smell? Now, this is a guy who has memorized 1,500 molecules by scent, okay? And Jean-Claude says, I don't know. Why don't you, I'll be your guinea pig. Why don't you test it out on me? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where that's where it started. Oh, cool. Um, but I, I found those really good on, on, on focusing... Because the individual molecules, actually, there's a right and wrong. Right. You know, we've all right. been taught mm-hmm. whatever you're smelling is right. Because right. I smell salinity and you smell citrus rind. And we're both right. It's just a different, you know, no. You say that <laughs> and he says, no. This is a citroil molecule. That's what it tastes like. I, I did go to a Amram, the cork supplier had a uh, a quick... They brought him in to be a consultant. It wasn't his full program, but it was um, sort of like a, a, a quick, or what do you call it? Just like a, a yeah, short, summarized program, short course, short course of his there stuff. Yeah. And so that was kind of cool. But I was very interested in, was surprised, and he talked about some aromas in terms of sweetness or warmth and coolness. Yes. And I was shocked by that. I thought it would be more smell equals, you know, molecule equals a scent. But he would group them in in, in warms and cools and and sweets. But that's how they sweet. that's how they do it, and it was very it's very much like the aroma wheel mm-hmm. that Anne Anne Noble did, and and I and I tell a funny story because, you know, I'm you're in his class and he's and he and he's giving you these these strips, and he says, Danielle, what is that? I said, it's apricot. He goes. Of course, it's apricot. <laughs> you know, is it warm or is it cool? Oh. Is it a is it a, 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 a white fruit or a stone fruit? Is it, you know, and he wants you to do the you know narrow, 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 and uh, you know from general to oh, I see. And yeah. and um, but it was apricot. So why mm-hmm. why beat around the bush? But mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> he wanted you to show your work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you were talking about your concept with with naked wine that this is really your first time in a sense to create a wine from whole cloth mm-hmm. and you addressed the 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 pinot noir so what about more wine and the the pinot noir we're saying what about wines with more depth and structure 
are you making wines with a little more you're making some reds i assume and yeah so i have the the grenache oh that's right that's yeah. kind of my entree into naked wines the, the rosé came out faster because it's a quicker production sure. wine sure i had done a podcast with a couple of people from naked wines years ago and that kind of piqued my interest in in potentially working with naked wines in in the future but i needed to find uh, a source of of grapes that i was interested in and mm. i I went down to Paso Robles to the uh, Vintage Report, uh, you know, that Fruition Sciences sure. put on in, in 2019. Uh, I did uh, spoke at that and then stayed with my friend Randy Heinsen, who runs Vineyard Professional Services down there. Uh-huh. You probably know yeah, Randy. I he know used Randy. to farm up, up here yeah. for Beckstoffer. And so he runs the Vineyard Professional Services. He's, he's kind of like the, the man, the vineyard manager of Paso Robles. He's got mm. his fingers in every development there. Um, and so he took me all around Paso because I hadn't spent time there before. And so it was really interesting to see. There's a real difference as you go from west to east in Paso Robles. I think he said for sure. every every mile you go east, you have an inch less of rainfall per year. Um, and so you have some coolness. And in, probably five degrees of, of yes, temperature. Yeah. yeah. You have some real coolness in like the Willow Creek AVA or the Adelaide AVA, some of those that are closer to the Pacific Ocean. And then as you go east, it gets much warmer, as you alluded to. Um, and so he just happened to be, he had planted a, a vineyard. It's his father's in law, father in law's property that he had planted to Grenache, some, some Cabernet Franc. But he got, he was very excited about some new clones of Grenache that he got. There were clones from Tablas Creek that had gone uh, back and been cleaned up. Nice. And yeah, so they have some beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. So some great heritage, but then, you know, cleaned up materials. So it was going to be a new wine. And, and um, I trust him to grow grapes. He's, he's the utmost professional at growing grapes. And he was talking about looking for buyers. And I thought, oh, this is maybe a great opportunity to pitch to Naked. So that's exactly what I did. I pitched it to Naked. And so that was kind of the, the idea that got my foot in the door. And so now I'm on my second vintage of producing uh, from the Coakley Vineyard. So it's a single vineyard, um, which is not too common necessarily for winemakers in, in California. I think a lot of the, the European winemakers do some of that. Um, but it worked out. They gave me this opportunity. I was super excited. I'm someone who's, I'm a technical nerd. I, you know, and that may span from, from vineyard to, to winery a bit, but I don't want to mess around with sales, marketing, compliance, Right. Administration, any of that. Naked Wine's this perfect partner to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm at CV full time, and that's where I have to be, especially at harvest. Um, it's an intense harvest because it's, it's such a small place and it's a small staff. Um, but Naked Wine's really presented the great opportunity to, to source grapes, have them produced in a facility where I could be in constant communication. Um, and now they're they're made at uh, you know in South Napa, so I can go there in the evenings. So you you truck them into Bindabal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I've just been so excited to learn Grenache because I don't have a great experience with Grenache. My winemaking experience has been so focused on Cabernet. Always made Chardonnay everywhere I've gone, but it's been fun to make Grenache and to make wine that's that's spicy and light and fruity, but doesn't have that heaviness. Shall we, shall we pull the cork sure, and sure. taste it? And then... Uh, Hang on, let me... Uh, go ahead, keep, I'll, t- I'll talk talking. while you go. <laughs> and so and then in 2021, I added Pinot Noir to the portfolio. So I've got a couple of great vineyards from, from Santa Barbara County, and I'm going to be producing a, a Pinot Noir, and it's just it's so much fun to make wines that are... 
that are just a very, I mean, I don't have to explain the difference between varieties to you, but in making the wines, Pinot Noir tastes good young. Yeah. And I'm used to going around, I don't taste out of barrel more than I have to with Cabernet because it's huge, especially at CV, it's tannic. It's a monster and it's not, you know, and then you put it in oak and the oak has a strong overlayment until the oak integrates. But Pinot Noir shines and I, I've kept thinking while I'm tasting Pinot Noirs from um, other friends' productions, like, this tastes so good. Why don't you bottle it now? Why do you have it in barrel for 16 months or 20 months? You're just, you're ruining it with oak. And so I have a real light touch with oak. Get to show just the, the brightness of the fruit. And, and, and what about when they tell you that that this lot is particularly tannic. Yeah, that is, that is, it's so cute. <laughs> that is my favorite. <laughs> well, it's funny because we started to me uh, in 99 and making Merlot, which isn't that different than Cabernet in the, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And, and then we started making Pinot and it was so funny because I thought people would say, you know, these guys from Silver Oak, all they know is Cabernet. They're going to make their Pinot like Cabernet. Yeah. And, and I thought the people who are trying to make Pinot like Cabernet are the people who don't make Cabernet. <laughs> you know, the people who make Cabernet are so happy to have yeah. a variety mm -hmm. that is more feminine, that mm -hmm. is more expressive of, of fresh fruit. And like you say, it doesn't have the massive tannic structure that... I think, if anything, we have a tendency to make very delicate Cabernet uh, mm -hmm. Pinot Noirs because why? Well, why that's what we you want to celebrate I about know. it. That's what you celebrate with the variety. Yeah. Well, in I think with Pinot Noir, you have to, as a winemaker, you have to ask, you have to answer the question of where do you want to be on the spectrum from from savory to to fruit. Yes. And. For me, I've I've always enjoyed, I think, the more fruit-driven Pinot Noirs, but I knew that coming into Naked Wines, and I had some conversations with people that work there, that the, the savory, lower ripeness, big savory wasn't going to be a big hit to the, the angels, to the customer base for Naked Wines. And so I thought, that's perfect. I'm going to try to find vineyards, and I'm going to pick and make a wine that's got a minimum of oak. I, I still don't want to make it heavy with oak, but I want to show fruit. They're, I'm not going for the the huge savory salinity type thing. That's right. That's for other producers. Although I did have one comment, which was one of my favorite exchanges at Naked Wines. Uh, for those who aren't aware of how this works, Naked Wine, all the wine is sold online, and the angels, the consumers, are encouraged to comment and rate the wines. All the ratings are done internally. There's no external ratings except when they send wines out to... Oh, like the Chronicle. The Chronicle. Yeah. Thing. yeah. But anyway, this this one comment on my Russian River Pinot was too sweet and too fruity. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so so I, I, I talked to the president at the Christmas party where, where we saw each other, and, and I said, you know, is it okay if I respond frankly to off-the-wall comments and he said sure you know that's part of this is educating that our, our consumer base so i responded first of all if you don't like the wine you can get a full refund yeah. i'm sorry thank w you for trying it which is an awesome an awesome ability thing. to be able to do awesome that first ability. of all uh no questions asked right but then i said just just to clarify things this wine 
is completely dry. I told you know, it was point two. I I don't think I did that. I think I just said the wine is is completely dry. But it is a Russian River Pinot, and it 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 has a fruity mm-hmm. sweetness to it that comes from the fruit. And I I don't know that I would ever think that a Pinot Noir was too fruity. And she responded back, well, I live in British Columbia, and, and I'm used to the oh. Okanagan Valley uh, wines that are more savory mm-hmm. and, and earthy. Mm-hmm. And I responded back, well, then you probably should be looking for wines from Oregon and from cooler cooler regions, cooler parts of California. But that's not what the Russian River offers. Mm-hmm. And to expect a Russian River wine to taste like a wine from British Columbia is kind of expecting uh, an Australian shepherd to behave like a golden retriever. Mm-hmm. That was one of my favorite answers ever, <laughs> you know. And, and, to, and to her credit, she responded back, thank you so much, I, I completely understand your point. And thanks for referring me to to Oregon. So she did not take offense at all. It was actually oh, a really fun exchange. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, it's not a it's a golden retriever. It's not an Australian shepherd, which I thought was 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 one of my favorite wine descriptors yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I might use that the uh, the dog breed uh, analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you've got you, you've got a, a, a wide range of uh, of that's of right material to use. So we're tasting tasting your Grenache. Okay, so this is the 2020 Grenache, and this is the first crop from this vineyard. Wow. Now, this is not the Grenache that you were talking about making rosé from. That was an Eldorado. Correct. That, so that that's a little confusing. Yeah. So that was, and is that also a naked wine? No. Territorium is a project that's just a, a, a brand on its own. I can tell you a little bit about how that, that started if you're interested. But it's, I confuse everyone because in 2021, I came out with, two different projects at the same time right. just by coincidence okay so is that your personal project or is that something you're consulting on it is so i'm a partner in territorium wines i was brought on as a consultant and i'm also a partner in the project but this was it, it's a really cool story especially to to tell on the podcast because that first winemaking class that i had in 2017 uh there were two two of the eight people that that came on um, like I said, I, I, I call them the quitters, the people that are really interested, you know, the, that are sort of the hardcore podcast listeners that, yeah. that want to start their own wine projects or some people are just hardcore home winemakers. Right. Uh, but the quitters are like the cream of the crop. They're the people that are really willing to take the risk and leave their jobs and leave the comfort of some of their salaries and their situations because they're, they're, they have that degree of drive or compulsion to to get into to winemaking um and so it was kind of driven by benjamin benjamin matthews who's a guy from cincinnati ohio um has a as a corporate job very smart very great sense of, of business but a real passion for wine and he was in that that group of people that was driven to want to make wines and so we had that three-day class in 2017 um he was kind of a superstar in that class, asked a ton of questions to all the producers we went to visit. And then, so we stayed in touch. And then he told me that he wanted to, he was getting more serious. And he ended up coming out and working with me at CV in 2018 for a harvest. So he took a, a 70 day leave of absence because the 70 days is exactly what his job uh, would allot him. Um, and so I think he had to leave on November 12th, which in 2018 was really hard because yeah. we had so many grapes that I was not ready to let uh, people go. <laughs> but he had to go home. Uh, but he got that 
that taste of winemaking and he, he wanted more. And so he was very serious about starting a wine brand based out of Cincinnati. And so started up plans to build an urban winery. And so then asked me to come on board to help him with sourcing some grapes in some, some startup wines from California. And so I agreed to do that. And we were sort of moving forward with plans in 2019 and then um, pandemic hit and having an urban winery in, you know, as he was really trying to gather money in February of, of 2020 was just, you know, out the window at that point in time. And so we pivoted and decided to, to start a virtual brand. And so in by 2021, we were able to launch Territorium Wines. So it was Benjamin, uh, Ben Matthews, Cameron Laurent, which was a, another guy that came out from Colorado to this same class. They had started a friendship. Cameron also came out to work in Sonoma in 2018. Had gone back to Colorado. No, Cameron stayed out in California. He was that serious about it. And so they came together and started Territorium Wines. And so we had to sort of to fast track the start of the brand. We, we bought a couple of, of really nice lots to start, some you know wines that were already produced, uh, bulk wines. So we had our, our launch of a Cabernet Franc and a Chardonnay in spring of, of 2021, and then crushed our first grapes uh, during the harvest. And so now we're about to release on Friday, March 11th, our Rosé of Grenache from Starfield Vineyard in El Dorado, our Riesling from Tendre Grapefruit down near Soberanes, down uh-huh. in, um, in Santa Lucia Highlands. And um, we have a, a 2020 Pinot Noir from San Rita Hills, which was also another bulk wine to help us wow. get the brand started and prove that we can sell wine. Um, and so I'm, I'm just very excited that this is kind of an outgrowth of not just the podcast, but their desire to make wine and we've all sort of come together through the podcast. Um, That's a great story. And so it is very sort of, um, I don't want to say millennial focused, but it's, it's focused all of our design and our packaging. Uh, we have four flavor emojis on the back of each label. So we kind of distill the four main flavors from each wine. And then we have like Riesling, we have uh, a lemon and rosemary and slate fourth one escapes me at this time but all all labels have four flavor emojis on the back it's got a qr code um, so you can go straight to the website there's no capsule try to use lightweight bottles all of our vineyard sourcing whether you're sourcing organic grapes or we're trying to find vineyards that have you know real certifications of sustainability because that's important to us and our generation and we know that's not only important now, but going to be more important for all wine producers going forward. Um, and we just want to communicate directly. We want to have a lot of transparency. We're working now to have a list of ingredients for all of the wines. And so we're going to start with that in, in the website. We may may not eventually have that on the back of the label. We're trying to, you know, there's only so much real estate on the back label. And so right. we're trying to figure out what looks good and what communicates. You could have the QR code li- link to it. Yep. Yeah, but we're yeah. going to list everything that goes into the wines because we want to have that transparency. We feel that like that's very important to us um, and and think it's important to people that uh, want to know how the wine was made. And so yeah, it's getting more and more important for people. Right. And yeah. I'm just excited about the wines because we're kind of exploring California and uh, we're not focusing on Cabernet Sauvignon. We're not in, in Napa. We're trying to find, you know, we're trying to price the wines between 20 and $40 a bottle, trying to make them accessible. And um, like I said, we've got those three wines launching on Friday. So very cool. It's time to sell wine now. All right. Well, that's a, I think that's a good, a good place to finish. Yeah. Cause oh. we're, we're, we're going on, on to two hours and, and uh, I, 
I'm getting tired. I don't know about you. <laughs> I have one question I would like to ask you, though, before okay. we wrap up. One of my favorites is, um, what did your childhood smell like? First of all, where did you grow up? And what, what are those those smells, those aromas that, are, that bring you back? Okay. So I grew up on the south shore of Long Island as a beach rat. And, oh, the smells that bring me back to my childhood are, are warm rye bread, fresh from the bakery. My mother uh, cooking blintzes mm-hmm. and, and the sea breeze, the yeah. ocean. How yeah. far were you away from the coast growing up? Oh, about five miles. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. So we, that was. It's an easy trip. That was it. Yeah. We were, we were the, the last town before Jones Beach. So I, I'm in the wine business because um, my second year of being a Jones Beach lifeguard. I flunked the physical because I'd had mononucleosis <laughs> and they canceled my summer job or I'd still be on the East Coast. <laughs> so it was 1968 and we drove to California and essentially have never gone back. How oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. So uh, Let's get some of the technical stuff. Give me the website for Complant. Complant is complantwine.com, C-O-M-P-L-A-N-T wine.com. Okay. And then obviously for Naked Wines, you can go to Naked Wines and search either Daniel Daniel Barron or Francophone. Yes, that is correct. And right now you have the, the Napa Valley Cab and, and, uh, and the Pinot. Russian River Pinot. Russian River. And just bottles the Ode Cabernet Sauvignon which is uh, Sonoma, Sonoma Valley, and the Ode to Harold, which is my homage to Harold Omo and oh, nice. my father, Harold. And that's from the Oakville, the UC Davis South Station Vineyard, oh, nice. which is adjacent to Martha, Martha's Vineyard and and uh, the south end of, of Tokelon. Tokelon, Peablock. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's a pretty amazing. So that those wines just got bottled. Um, so those those are my three my three brands with uh, with Naked, and we'll see what happens with France with the explorations in France. And then f- for you, Jim, uh, what? How do people get a hold of you? So inside winemaking, mm-hmm. is there a what? What's the what's so, the reference there? Yeah, insidewinemaking.com is kind of the the hub for the podcast. Um, and then through Naked Wines, you can search my name. J.M. Duane is my brand there. Obviously, CV Vineyard, um, C-A-V-E-Y, vineyard.com. You can check us out there. And if you're in Napa, come visit. It's a spectacular, beautiful, yes, quiet is, place yes. to, yeah. to visit. Um, and then territoriumwine.com. So spell Ter- out territorium. For yeah. T-E-R-R-A-T-O-R-I-U-M. And I forget if it's wine or wine, tiretarmwines.com. Um, and then on, on Instagram, I'm at Inside Winemaking, which got, I have the link tree links to everything. That's probably a, an easy way for, for people to find everything. Excellent. Oh, and I'll give my email address, which is just jim at insidewinemaking.com. I'm happy to hear all feedback from, from podcast listeners. And I do teach, I've got a rosé winemaking class I teach every February, just taught that. I got the three-day class in, in August, a one-day class in August. And uh, people are interested in, in technical winemaking. That's um, it's a great way to come visit Napa and learn some, some hardcore technical winemaking. So where, where do those classes take place? I teach um, 
the one day class and the rosé class, I'll teach it at CV Vineyard. And then for the, I call it deep winemaking. That's my sort of signature three-day class. I go all over Napa Valley. Oh, wow. So pick people up at eight in the morning. We go down to a Cooperage, either Demptos or Sagan Moreau, see them fire barrels to start the day. And then we're visiting vineyards and producers um, for three days. We'll do blind tastings every evening, cover lunches and dinners. And it's a great uh, wow. full intro into to winemaking. That sounds like a lot of work for you to put together. It is. I'm only doing one of those per year. So I'm, I'm thinking about other classes to, to do that are not so intensive. But that's kind of the, the signature class. That's great. And for, for me, the email is daniel at complantwine.com. Cool. I will include that, include that in my show notes. Yeah, there we go. Look at the show notes. Send us your feedback. Those of you in Bulgaria, again, we love you. <laughs> Thanks. Get, get Jim up there on the, on, on, on the list as well. And uh, thank you all for listening. It's been fun. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. I hope you enjoyed this double dose of winemaking podcasting. I would like to thank Jim Duane for his participation and great questions. Check out show notes for further details. If you have questions or comments, please email me at daniel at complantwine.com. That's D-A-N-I-E-L at C-O-M-P-L-A-N-T-W-I-N-E dot com. The music for season three is from Mike Marshall and Katrina Lichtenberg's CD, Third Journey. The tune is Borealis and features Katrina on mandolin and Mike on mandocello. Thank you for listening to The Winemaker's Journey.
Thank you.